Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the seventh series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the new elites, the meaning of God, the coming economic crash, the transformation of the earth, the mind of humans and aliens, food in hard times, what it means to be a philosopher, the end of the world. And in a special live recording in London in November, we'll be looking at the coming age of the machine. Philosophy is popular today, or at least it can be. Perhaps because religious faith doesn't have the influence it did half a century ago, a gap has opened up in the market, so to speak. Ironically, because this was more or less the role of philosophy in the classical world in which Christianity emerged, much philosophy today is popular, helping people understand the world, shape their worldviews, and even live their lives. Much, but not all. Because there remains, of course, deep strands of profound, difficult, challenging, abstruse philosophy, accessible only to those professionally trained in the discipline. Not many philosophers have managed to keep a foot in both camps, maintaining academic respect and popular acclaim. One who did was Roger Scruton, who died a few years ago. Another very different philosopher who does is Daniel Dennett. After the publication of his first book, Content and Consciousness, the review in the respected academic journal Mind described it as interesting, original and highly stimulating. Whether you agree with him or not... Those adjectives have applied to Dennett's work on consciousness, Darwinism, freedom and the mind-body problem constantly over the ensuing 50 years. And his latest book, I've Been Thinking, reviews his life and examines what he and we can learn from philosophy. Dan, welcome to Reading Our Times. I'm happy to be here. Good to talk to you, Nick. Your father was a historian, and you say at one point in the book that although you made several attempts as a student to follow in his footsteps, you discovered that your brain was not suited to historical scholarship. Do you think philosophy demands a particular kind of brain, or is it simply an approach to thinking that any brain can adapt? (laughs) Well, all brains are different, and and some brains are, are better equipped probably for philosophy than others. It's good that there's a place in academia where sort of anything goes. And the tolerance for wild ideas and off-the-wall thinking and thinking out of the box and all those other metaphors, philosophers do that, some better than others. I think my main concern about the way philosophers do that is I think that they often don't realize that the foible of philosophy is mistaking failures of imagination for insights into necessity. It's quite comical to see how philosophers often pound their fists on the table and say, look, it just has to be this way, necessity. And then they say something which just turns out to be false. Yes. And, and if they knew a bit more about the relevant field, they would be able to recognize that, that that's not true. That's just a failure of imagination. So it's an inherently creative imaginative discipline? I hope so, yes, it should be. And in that regard, I would like to uh, point out that there's a huge difference in philosophy departments 
at universities. Some of them are, are what I would call philosophy appreciation departments. <laughs> they teach you all the isms and the difference between this brand of pragmatism and that brand of pragmatism and this kind of rationalism and that kind of empiricism. And so you, you become a connoisseur of all the different isms, but you never actually do any philosophy. You're a spectator, not a participant. Uh, I'm happy to say that my career has been spent in departments where we were participants. Mm. We do the philosophy, for better or for ill, yes. but at least we're, we're engaged in it. And the question is always, do I believe that? Yes. You rightly point out that it's a very broad spectrum and the wings, if that's the right word, of analytical philosophy and continental philosophy appear quite a few times in the book. You're much more home on the analytic side, aren't you? Yes, I am. But at the same time, I have serious criticisms of the way analytic philosophy has developed in the last half century or so. For listeners who are less familiar than you about that particular division, how would you characterize analytic philosophy versus what's known as continental philosophy? <laughs> well, the caricature is that the continental philosophers just profess and their remarks by the professors at their lecterns are dutifully taken down and studied carefully. Whereas in the analytic tradition, we debate, we argue, we offer objections. There is really an important sociological difference there. It's just astonishing to see how the students in some continental departments, how docile they are, how over-respectful of the uh, obiter dicta of their professors, much more rough and tumble in the analytic school. But sometimes that descends into fisticuffs, and uh, philosophical fisticuffs is something to avert one's eyes from, uh, usually. And outright rudeness sometimes. There are a few examples you have in the book of seminars that you were involved in or set up or sometimes walked out of because they were utterly discourteous to visiting speakers. Yes. Well, you know, that's a byproduct of a good thing, namely passionate commitment to ideas. But sometimes people get carried away. And they do in the sciences as well. There's some awful dust-ups at the cutting edge of science. You point out that one of the differences, if you like, one of the sociological differences between analytical philosophy and continental philosophy is the way in which students engage with the teaching that comes down from on high. One of the other divisions between them, or perhaps slight caricatures between them, is that the analytic wing seeks to dismantle and pull things apart into constituent elements, whereas the continental philosophy tries, as it were, to swallow the whole thing at once and to digest it all at once. Yes. Is that a fair division or is that a caricature? No, I think in a way that's a fair division. And there's something to be said for both sides of that. Analytic philosophy can get myopic, can generate artifactual puzzles in its efforts to analyze everything down to the finest grained and most carefully defined items. And that can be an exercise in futility and just growing in consequence. I mean, who cares which <laughs> version of multiply revised and doctored up and patched somethingism is better than some other version of somethingism? One of the things I was going to ask you about is the importance of interdisciplinary work when you're being a philosopher. Yes. And not just interdisciplinary work, interdisciplinary activities. You sculpt 
you're interested in music and you sail. Now, a lot of people would see those as leisure activities, but it strikes me that one is likely to think better if one engages in these quote-unquote leisure activities. Fair? Oh, I think so, yes. And I think it all really goes back to a bit in Plato, actually, in the Theatetus. Plato compares knowledge to having a lot of birds in an aviary and it's your aviary and they're all locked up and you've got all your knowledge locked up. The trick is to get the right bird to come when you call. And uh, so often in philosophy, it's a case of being unable to get access to things that you actually know Mm -hmm. that would be the key to the solution to your problem. You just can't get your mind out of its current ruts. So the, the cure for that is to find some not quite mindless job to do, not all that demanding work, but just enough to jog your brain out of its current bad habits and into some better ones. Are these moments of inspiration, or is that too loaded a term for you? Well, it feels like inspiration at the time. Aha, I I have an inspiration. Yahoo, I finally see my way out of this cul-de-sac. That's a great feeling. Another good way to get it is simply sit down and talk it over directly with somebody you disagree with and let them try to jog you into a different perspective on things. And the importance of someone disagreeing with you is very significant because presumably the criticism you raised about continental philosophy earlier pertains to the fact that if you don't have bright people disagreeing with you, you're not going to re-examine your own ideas. Exactly. I get the heebie-jeebies when some students become over-committed to my ideas. And I tell them, look, if you're thinking about grades, I'm much more tolerant of a failed attempt to refute me than at a bad attempt to support me. Mm. (laughs) I don't need bad arguments from my positions. You prefer good arguments from other positions. Yes. We might conceivably come on to those later in our discussion, but there's a couple of areas I wanted to examined before we did. You mentioned communication there, and I wanted to ask about communication, and particularly clarity of expression, because if you were to ask most people about philosophy, they would view it as abstruse and difficult and alien. And actually, from both traditions, not only is continental philosophy impenetrable to most average, indeed highly educated readers, but analytic philosophy, a page of analytic philosophy, is even more so. You have striven for some form of clarity of communication. How important is it for philosophy to be expressible to people who aren't philosophers? I think it's very important indeed. I think that caricature of the ivory tower philosopher who's wrapped up in abstractions that only a few people understand is all too often an accurate assessment of what's going on. People get involved in topics that just aren't worth pursuing And they can't tell because the only people that can understand it are the people who are unfortunately fully engaged in and committed to the so-called problematic that they're dealing in. Mm. And this is a poison, I think. So have you received feedback or criticism from the popular books you've written, by which I mean those intended for a a trade press audience that have caused you to rethink a position? Or has that only ever come from professional philosophers? Oh, no. I'm an indiscriminate picker-up of good tips from all kinds of different readers. 
from undergraduates, from people in other fields that don't give a hoot about philosophy, but I read something of mine and it provokes them in some way. I think I'm always open to being brought up short by a question. Very often, the person will say, this is probably a pretty stupid question, but those are often the best questions mm. of all. But nonetheless, it seems to me that there has been a, a real continuity in your thought from earlier days, and that it's possible to draw a pretty direct line between your first book, Content and Consciousness, which is over 50 years old now, and your book about consciousness, Bark and Back, a few years ago. And I don't just simply mean a continuity of interests and themes, but of actually of arguments and conclusions. Do you think the Dan Dennett of 1969 would have agreed with the Dan Dennett today? Um, pretty much so. I think I got lucky. I found a few key points way back when I was working on my dissertation, and I developed those, and I've been turning the crank ever since. And the resulting extensions and implications and improvements have, have held up remarkably well. No, I think that there is a definite inner core to the way I've thought. And, you know, right or wrong, I'm going to pursue it because it seems to me to be one of the few constructive, generative research programs on the mind that's been going. Yeah. But I wonder whether that worries you at all, because you've just laid great stress on the need to be open to challenge and stress yeah. and critique externally. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, you say, for the most part, you haven't significantly changed your mind on core issues for 50 years or so. Might that suggest that the mind isn't as open as all that, that you actually established an idea and, as you said, you were going to plough that furrow almost irrespective? Well, this is actually an important tactical question. I think the best example of how to deal with it was some years ago, turn of the century, when my mentor and hero, Willard Van Orman Quine, it was late in his life, and I did a seminar based on his book, Word and Object, and based, in fact, on the syllabus of the course I took when I was a sophomore at Harvard in 1960. And this was almost 40 years later. And Quine came to the seminar and had great energy in defending the view that he had developed in that book in 1960. And my students were a little upset by this, or a little annoyed. They said, look, he's just going back to his old views. He's not conceding anything. And I said, well, think about it from his perspective. Who should he trust? The 50-some-year-old Quine who wrote his masterpiece, Word and Object, or the 90-some-years-old Quine, who, who may have lost a few marbles. He doesn't want to betray his own good ideas, and he's not quite sure which of his ideas are worth defending still. But rather than concede points which will simply extinguish the earlier version, go for broke. Mm. Don't concede. Go down heroically defending the view, even if it's, if it's not true. Mm. So what would you say you had changed your mind about? If your big ideas haven't changed, have small ones? Oh, yeah, lots. Give us the most significant thing that you've changed your mind about and why. I was just looking up my embarrassing quote a day or two ago. In Content and Consciousness, I had this wisecrack about how the language of thought hypothesis seemed to be merely replacing the little man in the brain with a committee. And, well, that's a cute line. And I've more recently come to think, no, that's, that is progress. We do want to replace the little man in the brain with a committee. Yeah. 
In fact, a whole army of little subpersonal semi-agents that somehow collaborate and compete. And uh, this is the path to a solution to the problem of consciousness and mind. And there I was dismissing it with a wisecrack back in 1969. Well, we should talk a little bit about consciousness because that, I guess, has been probably the most significant focus of your philosophical career. One of your major themes throughout your work is this uncompromising attack on what might be called mind-body dualism, the idea that the mind has got some kind of non-material stuff in it or that there is an entity there which is separate from the body. And you repeatedly critique that view, don't you? Oh, yeah. And that's a view that I've shared for my entire career. My doctoral supervisor, uh, Gilbert Ryle, made it famous with his book Concept of Mind and his attack on what he called the ghost in the machine. It's a perfectly dreadful idea. It's probably brought into best focus by Rene Descartes in the 17th century. And to me, 50, 60 years into my career, I'm amazed at how attractive it still is to so many people, including to many scientists. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that attraction to dualism is the sort of most pernicious and enduring bad habit of thinkers, both scientists and philosophers. I think seeing a way out of the trap of Cartesian dualism has to be the road to progress. But as you say, it's a remarkably persistent belief. And also, and this has surprised me recently, it's accompanied by a rise of what's sometimes known as panpsychism, the idea that, that consciousness is somehow deeply embedded and it goes all the way down through reality. Yes. Now, I've been doing a research project recently and I was really surprised interviewing academics, some of whom I think you know, how often panpsychism came up. And it, it seems to me it's more popular now than it was 10 or 20 years ago. So by your lights, I wonder if there is progress being made in this whole debate. Well, I think there is because I think panpsychism is a reductio ad absurdum. It is such a preposterous view that when you get clear about what it is, you shudder and walk away. And that's a sort of progress. Now, I think panpsychism is hopelessly regressive. It solves no problems. It's not a theory. It makes no predictions. It's just a slogan. And it's a slogan that many people find very attractive. But um, that's the only thing it has going for it. Why do you think they find it so attractive? Though? Why, why is it on the rise, seemingly? I think it's on the rise because people love their minds. And so they should. They're wonderful things. But they think that they can't love their mind if their mind isn't something sort of magical, something beyond mere body, beyond mere biology, beyond mere mechanism. The wonderful philosopher of science and journalist in Italy, Giulio Giorello, once interviewed me and the headline in the Italian newspaper the next day was, yes, we have a soul, but it's made of lots of tiny robots. <laughs> and I said, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's right. That's why panpsychism is false, because our souls are made of lots of tiny robots, uh, motor proteins and ribosomes and cells, and for that matter, bacteria and viruses, by the trillions. Mm -hmm. And people find the view of themselves as the generation of trillions of little microparts 
They find that repugnant. They find that ugly. I find it magnificent. I think fantastic. Imagine being able to make a soul out of all of these little moving parts. So are you happy then talking about the soul or the self as an emergent property of matter, something that emerges from complexity? I'm happy with that, except I don't like the word emergent. Because? Because emergent is often a uh, weasel word for something which is supposed to be somehow beyond science. But I think if you're going to use the word emergent, you should use it for phenomena that are surprising but are explainable and predictable by science. A traffic jam is an emergent phenomenon. There's nothing mysterious about it. It's just a physical phenomenon, but you're going to need some higher-level science to explain it. Well, that's the point, surely, isn't it? It's not that properly used. It's not that emergent phenomena are not analysable according to the scientific method. It's that they require specific scientific disciplines. You're not going to explain a traffic jam through physics, for example, or through chemistry, but you might do through the science of flow, for example. Yes, the combination of thermodynamics, economics, and the social sciences. Uh, Why do so many people decide they want to drive their cars right now? Put it all together, and you've got regularities. You've got real patterns of high predictability, high explainability. It's just that you can't explain them at the level of uh, carbon atoms and hydrogen atoms and so forth. Mm, Yes. Your view of consciousness is part of your wider commitment to naturalism. Tell us what naturalism is, and in particular, how it differs from materialism or physicalism. I don't know what purpose would be served by trying to carefully define those three words. They're all a bit different. I view them more or less interchangeably. My naturalism is basically the idea that we've managed to create science and engineering. I'm going to put engineering in there, too, because some of the most important and productive, groundbreaking ideas of the last 150 years have come from engineers, not from physicists or biologists. But I'm going to start basically with the world of biology. I'm going to take the same science that explains photosynthesis and bridges and spaceships and automobile engines and computers and see if we can't use that well-established science to come up with a theory of consciousness. Mm. Now, maybe we can't. Maybe the Mysterians are right. Maybe there's some mysterious extra something or other. Maybe there is a hard problem, as David Chalmers would say. But I think that's a premature conclusion. We haven't exhausted, we haven't come close to exhausting the explanatory resources of what we might call everyday science. And engineering. Mm. The reason I, I asked that slightly unfair question about defining naturalism, physicalism and materialism as if that was possible in, in, in a 45-minute interview or indeed a 45-year career is that it seems to me that a lot of the definitions become a bit circular and naturalism is predicated on that which is natural and materialism on matter and physicalism yeah. on that which is analysable by physics, which doesn't yeah. seem to be very satisfactory. No, it, it isn't, but it might help if you just say, well... Whatever it is, it's not supernaturalism. Well, that's kind of what I'm moving towards. It seems to me it's a metaphysical position that's defined by what it's against rather than what it's for. We can agree that naturalism isn't supernatural and vice versa, but that doesn't actually help us pin down on what it is. Well, it does and it doesn't. 
The thing about conjuring magic, is magic real magic? Is it sorcery? Is Are there mysterious powers? Is it like ESP or psychokinesis or something like that? Or is it just really clever exploitation of everyday mundane physical principles? And the answer is the latter. And I think before we start jumping off into metaphysical weird spaces, we should exhaust the resources of explaining consciousness as conjuring tricks, stage magic, wonderful stage magic. And, you know, some people don't want to know how the magic tricks are done. I think that's part of the motivation here, too. People don't want their minds explained. And in fact, I think some people are inspired by panpsychism precisely because it sort of shakes a defiant fist at science and says, aha, you'll never explain this. Consciousness is, is so fundamental, it out-fundamentals the cosmologists. Mm. This is the ultimate fundamental inexplicable what's it. Mm. Well, I understand the motivation, but I don't see any arguments. Mm. One more question on naturalism before we move on. How does naturalism cope with things like the laws of mathematics or the certain laws of physics on which it seems to depend? I don't see that there's a problem, although that's not obvious. I'm going to say something maybe a bit surprising. I don't think we would trust mathematics if we didn't have so much success with counting. If we couldn't get our bank balances to agree, if we couldn't count our sheep in our fold, the cattle in our barn, and come up with the same number every time, no philosophical or mathematical proofs of the consistency of arithmetic would be of any interest at all. Our ultimate faith in mathematics is because it works, and we see it work, and so we trust it. We've developed these amazing mathematical thinking tools, all the different strands of mathematics, uh, Cartesian coordinates, the calculus, set theory, uh, decision theory, uh, mathematical theory of games, uh, recursive function theory, all these wonderful thinking tools, and they work. And they can be abused, they can be misused, but there's a, a wealth of hard-won practical value from these thinking tools. And it flies in the face of well, let's say postmodernism. The postmodernists who think truth is just relative and ultimately there's no such thing as truth. Well, do they own a car? Do they expect the car to work? Do they realize how many truths have to have been figured out painstakingly by the engineers and the designers so that they understand how a car works? If you can make a car, if you can make a bridge that doesn't fall down, then you know the value of truth. Truth is real not metaphysical, absolute, super-duper truth with a capital T, but practical truth, pragmatic truth. Yeah, so it's a pragmatic is, is, response. Anybody who says they don't believe in that, they should look around at their own lives. Darwinian evolution by natural selection is also a very significant feature of your work, most prominently in your book Darwin's Dangerous Idea. And in it, you liken the idea to a universal acid that eats through everything of value, leaving nothing in its place. I'm sure No, you've... leaving everything in its place, but changed. Go on. <laughs> what Darwin did was simply 
He performed what I like to quote one of his critics was calling a strange inversion of reasoning. He showed that we can have a bubble-up theory of meaning and truth and comprehension and consciousness bubbling up out of a natural world where there isn't any purpose or teleology or meaning or intention and there is no God, but all there is is matter in motion obeying the laws of physics and out comes eventually order and then out of order comes design and out of design comes purpose and we move out of a pre-teleological era into a teleological era with no magic, no mystery. So I find that fascinating, and I was going to ask a question about teleology because the common approach understanding of Darwinism is, as you began by saying, it's done away with all teleology. But, for example, one of the other interviewees in this series of Reading Our Times is the British science writer Philip Ball, and he's working a book about the Book of Minds, which is a fascinating study. And one of the things that he writes about is the fact that minds emerge with remarkable frequency on some very different evolutionary trajectory on Earth. Different kinds of minds, certainly, but minds nonetheless. It seems to me that evolution seems to be, at least on our planet, a bit of a, a rigged game where, unlike what Stephen Jay Gould once said, rewind the tape, put it forward, and you'll get a totally different picture, you won't actually rewind the tape and you'll get minds again. And you might get moral awareness again, and you might get metaphysical discussions again. So perhaps there is some teleology baked into the system. No, there isn't teleology. What there is is evasions of attraction, <laughs> which are not teleological. Convergent evolution is a good way of looking at this. When there's a problem that's facing life forms in many different lineages, there may be a, a solution which has a lot in common. Flight. Flight has evolved numerous times. And sight. And sight has evolved numerous times. Flight and sight are two excellent cases. But we don't need teleology to explain that any more than we need teleology to explain why wheels are round. Why don't we have cars with hexagonal wheels? Well, <laughs> it's pretty obvious why not. They would not be effective. So the famous quote from Marx about Darwin and teleology is, I think, up for reinterpretation. Is he saying that Darwin showed there was no such thing as teleology, or did he make the world safe for teleology? I say the latter, and I think that's probably the main message of my book, From Bacteria to Back, is that the world starts off without any reasoners, without any minds, but there are reasons. There are reasons long before there are reasoners. There are reasons because there are engineering reasons why certain things work and certain things don't. And evolution which is itself a mindless, non-teleological process. It's a ratcheting process of design improvement, very myopic, but design improvement nonetheless. And what it does is it discovers reasons why things should be one way rather than another, and it discovers them by brute, empirical, yeah. and wasteful testing. And so there were reasons long before there were reasoners, in the same way there were numbers long before there were mathematicians. I find that fascinating because here we come on to the area of the discussion where, of course, you and I will almost completely disagree. That strikes me as being wholly compatible with a theistic or at least a deistic, shall we say, view of the universe. The fact that the created order exists with reasons inherent in it and there happens to be this random process that allows organisms to detect them. Well, 
That's fine, except you don't need the theist or the deist addition. It'll happen without it. I mean, <laughs> David Hume got very close to this when he, in his dialogues concerning natural religion, had a wonderful fantasy about a, a sort of a amateurish god that botched lots of creations and just kept creating away until the designs got better and better. He, he was that close to articulating the principle of natural selection. And the thing is, we don't need the God that puts his or her finger on the scales and tips the scales. Evolution will take care of it all by itself. But evolution detects, in your own phrase, the reasons that are pre-existent to evolution. Well, it detects the reasons that emerge from the interaction of complex organizations of matter. The world, the universe, since the Big Bang, went through a long, long, monotonous period, as David Deutsch has pointed out in a wonderful talk. The great monotony, he calls it. Nothing happened, or nothing new happened. And then evolution got started, life got started, and now you have novelty everywhere. And it's changed the planet. The effects of life on the planet covered the surface and this thin coating of life, all the reasons that we can detect, all those reasons were generated by the mindless, laborious process of natural selection. I want to come into land now with a question about what philosophy is and what it can achieve. You describe your method as one of philosophical whittling, which I think is a rather nice phrase. And you say that philosophy is, uh, at its best, is a intellectual reverse engineering, methodically dismantling bad habits of thought that sustain intellectual pandemics and replacing them with better thinking tools. It reminded me a bit of Wittgenstein's idea that philosophy was about showing the fly the way out of the bottle. Would you put yourself in his camp about philosophy in that regard? And if so... Yes, I, uh, strangely enough, I would. I mean, I'm... Um... Is that not a quite deflationary perspective on philosophy? Shouldn't we hope for philosophy to construct rather than just show us the way out of the bottle? Well, it does construct. It constructs ways out of the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and that's, that's not nothing. That's, that's a good thing to do. The book is called I've Been Thinking. Dan Dennett, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you. It's been fun, Nick. Next week, I'll be speaking to Cal Flynn about her book, Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape. And you can drive around about two, maybe three stories above the original streets because it's that covered in ash. And so the tops of the buildings are poking through here and there. But you have to keep the car engine on, you have to keep the doors open, you have to keep the car facing towards the exit because if it does rumble into life, you've got about 90 seconds to get out of there. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Daniel Turner, Fiona Hanscom and Chinny MacDonald. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk where you can find details of a special live event in London this November, in which we'll be talking about the coming age of the machine with Lord Robert Skidelsky. 
We hope to see you there.